Okay, so this morning we're continuing our study in the book of uh, Habakkuk. This will be our, our third sermon. And we are going to be doing a uh, analysis, a study of God's first answer to the lament of Habakkuk. As we will see, uh, and as I have titled the sermon, we will see that God gives unexpected answers many times when we plead, when we ask him, when we uh, are waiting for him to intercede. So with that, we're going to read today Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. If you are able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. And the inerrant, infallible word of God reads, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this word. For you are mighty, for you are faithful in giving us your word in due time. As we study your word, Lord, that it becomes apparent that we need it, that we should live by it, that we should look to it for our instruction, for our rebuke, so that we can be able to repent of our, of our sins, Lord. May you be with us now as we study this passage in Habakkuk, and uh, may our hearts be convicted in repentance to you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So as we come to, this, uh, to the study of this passage, we will see that, as the title reads, God's, God gives unexpected answers many times to our pleads and to our prayer. Now, let us take note that Habakkuk is genuinely concerned for the people of Israel. He is crying out to God in his first lament, which Brother Eric preached on last week, because there is chaos going on in, within the people of Israel. And Habakkuk pretty much thinks that God is not listening. It seems that Habakkuk has been constantly coming to the Lord with his uh, crying out, with his diligent uh, intercession. And Habakkuk thinks that God is not aware of the evil that is widespread among the people of Israel. As we saw last week, there is violence, there is destruction, corruption. The law of God is being ignored. There is no justice. And it seems that the ones doing evil oppress those that are trying to do good. Those few that seemingly would be left to do good. 
And Habakkuk's lament is a prayer that is saying, Lord, please intervene. Lord, please change this. Why does it seem that my prayer falls on deaf ears? Lord, please act. And therefore, we see that Habakkuk's prayer is a prayer of supplication. Right? We practice the prayer of supplication uh, as a congregation once a month when we come together, right? One of the aspects we focus on is supplication, asking, pleading with God to intercede. In this particular case, Habakkuk's prayer of supplication was for God to intercede in the wickedness that had overtaken the children of Israel in their disobedience and disregard for the, the law of God. Now we're going to see that God answers the prayer of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk, as we will see next week, but we can start to realize why now, Habakkuk is surprised at the way that God answered his prayer. Not only is he surprised that God answered, but he's surprised at the way and the content of God's answer. So then, the prayer of supplication, asking God to intercede, to make things better, many times is according to us. Like what we think is the better way for God to act, to make things better according to us, right? Many times we take that position in a, either knowingly or unknowingly. And there's often this unspoken yet prevalent expectation that if we come before God in our genuine in our prayers, or even if we follow the ways of God, if we come to the Lord even in in repentance for the first time to become Christians, we have this notion that things will get better, right? Is, isn't that reasonable to assume? Well, in a way, it's true. If we are walking in the ways of the Lord, if we come to Him in repentance, if we come and are praying to Him genuinely, there is a way in which things, are, things will be better because we are being diligent, we are uh, being repentful in our attitude towards God, and in that sense, we are children of God. We are secured. That's the eternal perspective. So will things be better? Yes, they will, in that sense. However, in another way, we can be diligent, we can be prayerful, we can be genuine in our walk with the Lord. We can come to the Lord in repentance, even for the first time as we become Christians. However, in the temporary sense, things may actually get worse. Get that? Many times when we are evangelizing, it seems that we want to tell people that God has a wonderful plan for your life. When it says that's true, eternally, yes. But in the here and now, things may actually get worse. Why? Because Jesus, the gospel, brings division. Let us think about that for a bit. The true Christ brings division because there is no room for idols. There is no room to put others or other things in the place of God. Jesus is the embodiment of the truth. And therefore, anything that contradicts him, any worldview that contradicts Jesus, will be and is divisive. So we cannot come with this mind that we can coexist with any ideology with any other belief system that contradicts Jesus because Jesus brings division. 
So as Christians, we must be willing, ready, and able to divide over truth. Okay? Divide over truth. Let us take a quick look at Matthew 10, verses 34 to 36. It says, Do not, this is Jesus talking, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. You see that? This is spoken in the context that when you stand for the truth of the gospel, when you stand for the truth of Christ, you will be in division with the world and with those that are against Christ. And therefore, Jesus tells us to count the cost. It's again Jesus talking. Luke 14, 28 to 30 says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So why am I giving this intro? about us coming to the Lord, us being genuine in our prayers, us being genuine in our repentance, coming to God, and things seemingly get worse. Well, when God draws us to Him to follow Him as we become Christians, and later when we become diligent in our prayer life and in our walk, as we plead with Him for deliverance from either wickedness or perhaps for the Lord to restore a relationship of ours, to restore our families, issues with acquaintances and our communities, etc. Before things get better, things probably will get worse. Yet, we are accountable for our attitudes to keep a righteous character and to be faithful in our living during those trying times. So today we will see that the answer that Habakkuk receives from God after he pleads with him, is not what Habakkuk is expecting. Just as we, as we walk with the Lord, as we plead with him, many times he will not give us the answer that we are expecting. We will see that before God restores Israel, first things will get worse. And it's a way in which God's people are being judged for their wickedness. It's very important. We're going to see that today. So, as we often do, we'll divide the sermon into three portions. It'll be as follows. First, we're going to see that God is not blind to what is happening in the world. God knows exactly what's going on. Secondly, we're going to see that God is sovereign over evil. Not, over, not only over individuals, but also over nations. God is in control. And third, we're going to see that God is perfectly aware of what evildoers do are doing. So let us dig right in. First, God is not blind to what is happening. Habakkuk 1 verse 5 says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astonished, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So the first way in which the answer to Habakkuk's prayer is unexpected is that while he thought that God was not listening, God is listening, right? There's times where we, don't, we pray, but we really don't think that God is listening. I was talking to my wife last night, and 
I was asking her, has God ever answered a prayer that um, you didn't think he was going to answer in that way? And she's like, well, I'm not sure of that, but I know for a fact I've prayed basically without faith and God still answered. So in that way, she was surprised, right? And if we think hard enough, I think that all of us could relate to that. But the context here of God's response to Habakkuk that we're focusing on today is God telling Habakkuk that he is not blind to all the chaos that is happening within the disobedient people of Israel. And at the heart of Habakkuk's prayer is the complaint, which we often have ourselves when we pray to God. And it goes something like this, Lord, why are you not doing what you should do? Think about it. Because we think that we deserve health. Lord, why are you healing me? Because we think that we deserve blessing. Lord, why did I just lose my job? Because we think that we deserve goodness. right? So Lord, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to? So we can blame Habakkuk, right? As if we're honest, we've probably found ourselves in a similar situation. Now, namely, out of desperation and anguish, we can cry out to the Lord and essentially say, Lord, please have mercy, help in this situation. Heal the sickness. Lord, change my spouse's heart. Lord, give me a job. Lord, guard my family from harm. Lord, keep my kids healthy. There's nothing wrong with pleading to the Lord with that, right? Nothing wrong at all. But we need to seek maturity in our walk to go beyond that. What do we mean by that? Right? We are encouraged. Right? Knock and it'll be answered. We need to come and plead to. Who else are we going to plead with? Right? But as we seek maturity in our walk, we need to go beyond that and take a step of faith to also include in our prayer life, in our prayer life and in our pleading, in our supplication to say, Lord, as these trials grieve me, Show me your glory, Lord. As my child is sick, as my children are running astray, Lord, draw them to you. As my relative is sick, Lord, save them. Draw them to their knees. Break them. Because we're too quick to say, oh yeah, heal them. That way they, they won't be uncomfortable. Again, the notion that we have this, this idea that we deserve to be okay, right? So yes, there's nothing wrong with praying for them, but ultimately we, might, we must go beyond that and ask that the Lord will draw them to himself that, so that ultimately what needs to be restored is restored. And that would be our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And if it takes a breaking of, of a family member, I've seen it in my own family, even if it takes the horrible death of our loved ones, so that others may see their need for him. May it be so. And it's easier said than done, as I've experienced myself within my family. So then God tells Habakkuk, my answer will not only surprise you, but in fact, it will seem unbelievable to you what I'm up to. As finite human beings with, infant, with finite minds, we understand the world in a limited way, in the temporary and a limited perspective. Whereas God, being perfect in his infinite knowledge, he views the world from an eternal and perfect perspective. 
Let us take a quick look at Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. We should know this reference. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So God's message to Habakkuk is, I'm listening, and I know what's going on. And God is telling Habakkuk, I'm going to tell you what I'm up to, and it's going to seem unbelievable to you. Takes us to our second point. God is sovereign over evil, not only over individuals who are wicked, but also over nations who are wicked. Habakkuk 1 6, it says, For behold, this is God speaking, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So if God is helpless to the evil, and the rampant sin and rebelliousness that is going on in the world, if God can't do anything about that, then God is not sovereign. And God is not in control. If the wicked can devise plans in order to mess up God's will, then God is not all-powerful. My brothers and sisters, that is not the God we serve. There's no such thing as us being in a difficult or even tragic situation and God having to say, oh, darn, that's right. You know, that slipped through the cracks. Sorry, sorry about that. No such thing. God is sovereign over all evil. So therefore, the second way in which God's answer to Habakkuk is unexpected is that God says, not only am I aware of what's going on and all the evil, but I'm going to use the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, a nation that is even more disobedient and more wicked than Israel, to discipline them. See that? So we will look at two main lessons in that concept. God is bringing an even wicked nation, more wicked nation, to spank his children. He's going to spank them hard. Lesson one is that disobedience has consequences. Habakkuk's prayer was asking God to not turn a blind eye to bring obedience, peace, and restoration to his people. Although that will come, the immediate consequence of their sin will not be... They're not going to get a free pass. There's going to be consequence for the disobedience. So let us be reminded then that ultimate disobedience to God... Right, this will be for the non-Christians, they die in their disobedience. It's eternal punishment, condemnation. And it may seem that during this time in this world, it may seem as though everything is fine. Right? And that's why there's this theme in the Bible that the righteous say, Lord, why are the wicked prospering? Right? That may be a sign that those who are not repenting who are perpetually in disobedience and die in their disobedience, although they may not suffer immediate consequences, for sure they will suffer the harsh judgment of condemnation, burning forever in hell. Now, there's also temporary disobedience to God, and this will most likely apply to us Christians. 
This will not be eternal punishment because we are saved from the righteous judgment of God by grace through faith in Christ. Thank, thanks be to God for that. But if we are God's children, he will not, hear me out, he will not let us get away with sin. Scripture says that if you belong to him, he will discipline you. And if you are not disciplined and you're fine and nandy, cruising along, sinning away, that probably means that you're actually not a child of God. That's heavy. Right? It's, oh, I'm keeping my sin secret. Nobody knows. And I'm just going to, I'm going to cruise along. Danger. Our brothers and sisters, danger. Hebrews 12. Verses 6 and 8 says, For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. We recently talked about this in our men's study, right? If we are children of God, God will discipline us. Okay? And just a quick note, discipline doesn't mean that God puts barriers for us to get to our sin. That's not discipline. Right? That's just our wicked nature not being able to sin as much as we want. But God will discipline his children. That's lesson number one, right? Our disobedience has consequences. The second lesson we can see in that is that God's judgment begins with who? With outsiders? No. God's discipline begins with us, with his people. So God is not going to punish the Babylonians first. Well, they're going to get it. But first, God is interested in judging and punishing his people, Israel. And therefore, this is a reminder for both the Christians and the non-Christians. Let us look at 1 Peter 4.17. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Right? For, so for the Christians, our sins will find us out. God will not give us a free pass because we are His. So we're going to be disciplined. For the non-Christians, if you think the judgment of God is harsh in his people, wait until you see what's going to happen to you. Right? Message here for both those Christians and the ones who are not. So God introduces Habakkuk the concept that he is going to use the evil Babylonians, the Chaldeans, to discipline his people. And the way that's going to happen is that the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to take their land. They're going, to, they're going to put Israel into captivity. So now we're going to take a quick look at the description of those Chaldeans. What do they look like? This is to a third point. That God is perfectly aware of what evildoers are up to. Habakkuk 1, 7 through 11. This is a description of who the Chaldeans are. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. 
Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So the third way in which Habakkuk's uh, answered prayer is surprising is that God is not only well aware of the wickedness of his people, that Habakkuk is saying, Lord, please help intervene. God is saying, not only do I know their wickedness, I also know the wickedness of those that are outside that I'm going to use for them to be judged. Right? And these folks are going to come and take over the land. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are infamous for their wickedness. They have a reputation of being vicious. Right? Think about Taliban on steroids. They are vicious people. It says that they have no dignity nor justice. Those things have gone from them. Right? They have no dignity nor justice. And that they recognize no higher authority than themselves. The way that God describes the wickedness of this people is through the use of poetic language. Right? Again, we go back to the concept of being able to know how to interpret scripture. Let us remember that this is poetic language being used. And here it illustrates that the Babylonians are vicious warriors in their demeanor, in their character, and are very powerful in their military tactics and in their resources, right? It describes their horsemen, their, uh, their horses are swifter than leopards, right? That's poetic language to show us that these people are bad news. It says that there's, there are more fears than evening wolves. It was known that evening wolves in the times of the Old Testament, they would hunt their prey during the night when they were most vulnerable. And then once they would hunt, the wolves were so vicious that it, then they would even fight amongst themselves for the pieces of flesh of their prey. And God is saying, these Babylonians that are coming in, those vicious wolves have nothing on them. This, these people are worse. Right? So let us focus on two specific aspects of the qualities, or lack thereof, right? The character of the, of the Chaldeans. First, let us look at the issue of them despising authority. Right? We read here that they scoff and laugh at rulers, and they laugh and destroy any sense of orderly society, right? Any, any fortress, any order that they see. That's a joke to them. And they want to tear that down. Another translation gives us the understanding that these Chaldeans, living in a time where kings and rulers were to be feared and honored, to them it was like, what a big deal. Laugh at them, scoff at them, right? It was a joke to them, any, any uh, sort of established authority. 
we know that we are instructed by God to honor authority. First, we are told as Christians that we are to honor parental authority. Not only honoring our father and our mother, right? But specifically, we see in Hebrews 6, verses 1 to 3, the following. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So God is honored when we honor our parental authority. Next, we know that we are instructed by God to honor civil authority. Titus 3.1. It says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So here's a concept of us being submissive, of being essentially good citizens, so that we could give a good witness, right? This does not mean that if Caesar tells you to stop worship, that you're to submit to authority. That's not the case. Lately, many well-intended Christians have used the concept of Romans 13 to tell us that we need to do everything the government is telling us. That is not biblical. If you are interested in some elaborate uh, study in that, Please talk to me. But that's not to be confused with being submissive to the civil authorities that God had placed and being a good witness, a good citizen, right? Otherwise, the folks living in, for example, in China that are ordered not to worship, they would need to honor the authority and say, okay, well, Lord, sorry. The communist regime is telling me not to worship, right? So let us be careful with that. Nevertheless, we honor God when we honor civil authority. We also know that God is honored in the authority of the church, the ecclesiastical authority. Hebrews 13, 7, uh, 13, 17, the first half of that says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Right? God is honored when in a local church context, there is a elder, there are deacons and there is an orderly submission of authority and it's not for the sake of having authority but because shepherds because me I am accountable to God for the sheep that he has placed under my care so authority of the church God is honored and then ultimately there is divine authority that's obviously all over the scripture but we'll look at one verse is sort of the consummation of that. Matthew 28, 18, when it says, Jesus talking, it says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? Jesus is king. He is over all. He is sovereign. He is king of kings, Lord of lords. So we see then how to honor God, we need to honor authority. And the key here we need to understand is that respect for authority in the context of our families begins in the home. If a child has no respect for parental authority, it is a matter of time before the kid will show no reverence to any other kind of authority. Ultimately, will care less about divine authority. Right? Who cares? I am my own authority. Secondly, let us note that the Chaldeans served 
a false god. They were idolaters. They have made their power their own god, right? That's what the text tells us. Now it is known that the patron god of the Babylonians was a false god by the name of Marduk. They honored Marduk as a type of warrior god who led them into battle. In the end, because they have rejected divine authority, the Chaldeans did, they had to create an idol according to their own corrupt and violent image. Despising authority, rejecting authority, inevitably leads to idolatry. We will put a false god in the place of the true God when we reject and despise the authority structures that God has set. Let us take a quick look at 2 Peter 2 verses 9 and 10. It says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment unto the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. What goes hand in hand then with despising authority, with disregarding the commandments of God, with sinning, knowingly disobeying God? What goes hand in hand with that? The lust of defiling passions. What can that look like in everyday lives? The drive for sexual pleasure, the desire for power, the passionate desire for riches, right? These things is what led the Chaldeans to be idolaters, to idolize their power, their might, under their false god, Marduk. So what can we say about that then? What about us today? Have we despised authority? Have we made an idol out of our own little empire in order to, fo in order to follow after our own defiling passions? Right? This is where we need to apply the scripture to us. We need to see that the people of Israel will in, in fact rebellious, disobedient. The Babylonians, in fact, even more wicked than them. But then the question turns to us. What about us? Are we any better than the Babylonians? In speaking about the idolatry in the sense of the children of Israel, let us be reminded what the New Testament tells us of that about the Old Testament let's go to 1st Corinthians 10 11 it says now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come so what we learn from the Old Testament the idolatries the disobedience the sins of the people of Israel and even of, of the pagans it was written for our instruction. It was written as an example for us to learn from. So that if we are honest, we could see ourselves in that mirror and say, I believe that the little power that I have, I can make that into an idol. It is not too far-fetched to think of a time where my defiling passions led me to sin. Right? We, we can all relate to that. And that's what fueled the violence, the corruption, 
of the Chaldeans, and for that matter, of the Israelites, because they were under idolatry as well. So then, what are some, some overall takeaways then about the surprising way in which God answered to Habakkuk? Three quick things here. First, we see that God answers prayer. And when he does, it's often surprising the way he answers. Very often, we want a fast and instant solution to a trial. Like now. Please, Lord. But we see that God is not in a rush. Before things get any better, God is first going to deal with his people. And God looks to purposes beyond simply fixing a situation, beyond simply healing someone. God's purposes are much beyond that. So therefore, in our most desperate need, we need to remember that what we may think is our most desperate need is not in a difficult situation, whether it's sickness, restoration of a relationship, etc. As important as those things are, let us remember that through those trials, God's main purpose is to draw us to himself, to be dependent upon him. So when folks ask us for prayer, whether within our our local body or from the outside. Let us lift up those supplications. Absolutely. Let us be like Habakkuk and plead with God. That's what we're supposed to do, right? We see that in the Psalms. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But let us be reminded that God wants us to be bold in asking to let us see His glory, to give us grace and mercy to understand His purposes in the midst of our trials. Let us know that those trials are for us to draw closer to him, not necessarily for him to fix our situation, as Habakkuk thought that it would be. And then let us also take a, a, a quick reflection that the people of Israel were not ignorant of the law of God. They knew about the law of God. But they didn't repent. They were not ignorant of the law of God. But they chose, instead of turning to God, they chose to sin. How can that speak to us today? Well, are you aware of the gospel? I believe that, at least in this room, all of us are aware of the gospel. But the question is, are you ignoring the gospel? Are you waiting for God to come and spank you real hard? Or should we repent now? Are we waiting until we're found out, exposed, humiliated? Or are we going to repent now? So my brothers and sisters, this is a call for us to repent before God brings discipline on us. That it would be the long-suffering, the goodness, the patience of God that would lead us to repentance rather than his harsh punishment more than well deserved for our disobedience to him. You are aware of the gospel. Are you ignoring the gospel? Let us think about that today. And then finally, we see that God is well aware 
of what evildoers are up to. So whatever we've been up to, whatever our motives, whatever our thoughts, whatever our ambitions, whatever our priorities, God knows. God knows exactly what we're up to. Just as God described in detail the wickedness of the Chaldeans, picture this. God is able to display our every wicked thought and deed up in the screen. He knows. And therefore, it's a call for us to repent, to come to Christ, to come to God. To not try to make an excuse of why we're not living the way we should live. Because as bad as those Israelites were, and even as even more wicked that the Babylonians were, that are going to be brought to give judgment to the Israelites, that can be true of us too. Right? So may we be encouraged by knowing that God is long-suffering, that God is merciful, that God does restore us, Right? So that we may turn to him while there's still time. And not wait for harsh judgment to come upon our lives. Either to us directly or in a form of a trial to a loved one. And then looping up to our first point. Even if we're walking with God. Even if we're being faithful. And still we're stuck with a trial. Let us be the type of Christian that cries out to God, not only to relieve us of that and to help us through that, but to let us see His glory to that. To see how we could honor Him and worship Him through whatever trial it might be that He brings in us, even if we are being righteous and obedient. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for You are good, for You are righteous in every judgment that You do. We thank you, Lord, because you have spoken your word for such a time as this, Lord, as we are living in perilous times. We call to you, Lord, to plead with you for mercy, for grace, for healing of our homes, of our hearts, of our city, of our state, of our nation, of our world. And even if things get worse before they get better, Lord, let us repent and let us see your glory in that your ways are higher than our ways. Lord, if we are discouraged this morning, bring comfort to us knowing that you are a God who is faithful, that you are a God who saves, that you are a God who draws people to yourself and because you draw us to yourself, you never turn us away when we go to you. Let us take comfort in that this morning, Lord. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.